Today we have Álvaro García with us. He's originally from Barcelona, Spain, graduated from Universidad Politécnica of Catalonia, where he made a bachelor's in computer science, and he also made an MBA at the University of Normandia. He has more than 10 years of experience, a marvelous career, where now he sits as principal software engineer at Appium Hub. Alvaro is a continuous contributor to the community as conference speaker, writer, and event organizer. Today, we have the absolute pleasure of having him with us. Alvaro, welcome to the podcast series Path to Principal. In this space, we want to know more about you and how you got into tech and becoming a principal engineer. I would like to ask uh, to introduce yourself. So, uh, hi, hi, Luca. First of all, it's a pleasure to be here with you. Um, to be honest, after that great introduction, I don't know if I can deliver on the on the many things that you said. Uh, so, so let's let's go forward a little bit and let's let's enjoy the the conversation. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna start by introducing myself as as you requested. I'm a software engineer by heart, and uh, I received the gift of being mentored many years ago. Now I believe I should pay it forward to the community in any way that I can. Maybe it's about organizing events. Maybe it's about reviewing uh, code or reviewing open source or reviewing a book that is in progress or you know contributing in any way that I can. Maybe it's attending an event or having the absolute pleasure of uh, joining you in a in a podcast. Regarding my career, I've participated in, in product companies, uh, service and consulting companies as well. I've also created my own business and, and finally ended up as a freelance consultant and coach on software development. This is, this is what I do. It's, it's incredible how, how life shifts around from one thing to, to the next one and, and how it moves and turns. And I've had such a long uh, uh, and nice ride along the way. It's been very wild. And I hope it continues like this for, for a long time. And I hope that uh, people also continue, uh, you know, doing great things around me and I can benefit on, on learning from them. This is great to hear, Alvaro. I, I think as you, as you think, um, building things for the world, helping others to grow, uh, being in this continuous learning environment and, and, and growing, I also feel super identified with you because I also built um, my own my own little business and products, and it's super interesting to know how how challenging things get when when you start uh, growing and, and learning and, and helping others to grow. Apart, your career speaks for yourself, so let, let, let's get to that. What no, do you think? <laughs> but uh, if if I have to be honest, my business failed six months in. We were uh, very lucky to have. Uh, no debt, no long-term consequences, and my business failed. What I what I got from that is I learned a lot. I did not make uh, a single dime out of it, but I learned a lot. So that's uh, that's what counts. So now I can uh, say that I'm a a failure as a, an entrepreneur. I I'm going to keep trying in the future, but I'm a failure as uh, what I, I've set up in the in the past. As they say in the quotes, never-ending quotes say on the internet, uh, we never we never fail or, or or something like that. But at the end, we learn, as you as you just mentioned, and I think it's super important to acknowledge this because I do not think even a one single entrepreneur that has gotten in the first one, maybe one or two, I don't know, but it's super hard. So 
I'm pretty sure this this uh, learning will will help you continue growing. Yes, yes, hopefully. Um, <laughs> <laughs> perfect, Alvaro. So uh, you have an amazing experience, um, but I want you to tell me and our listeners what made you seek the software engineering path. So that's that's a that's a funny question, or that's a funny scenario at least. So. I wasn't supposed to be a software engineer at first, but rather an, an architect. So I'm I'm speaking not in the sense of uh, software architecture, like a software architect, but in, in the rather classic uh, terminology of dealing and working with, with buildings, projects, and construction. So as, as life turned out to be, a last minute change in my career made me choose uh, the software engineering path. And... Uh, to be honest, to be frank, I'm very happy how things have turned around and I consider myself very lucky. This is a, something that is reoccurring in, in my life. Uh, I, I consider myself very lucky. I was uh, lucky enough to be able to choose between these two options and I chose the latter on software engineering and it has turned out very, you know, very good, very good until now. Re regarding the, the engineering in, in the field of software that uh, that you mentioned no, about the software engineering path, I believe that, that creating, maintaining, and dealing with software is a mix of uh, engineering and art. So let's say engineering because you can measure, you can predict, you can make plans, and you can try to guess the future a little bit. And also art because there's a certain degree of aesthetics in what we do on the usability of the products we create on the experience of using our software. You know, what kind of sensations and emotions do, do you get from using it, both from the um, user point of view, no user experience, and also from the developer, which is called the developer experience. What, what kind of experiences and what kind of um, feelings and emotions and sensations do your developers get from, from using the software? So let's say, Working on a, a legacy code base that you don't really enjoy is not so pleasurable, or it's not so, such a good uh, developer experience, DX, as working on something that is also legacy, but you also enjoy and you see get better every day and see that you can improve, etc., uh, etc. Et I'm also interested in, in predicting the elites, so quality attributes of a software solution. No? The, the source for this is building evolutionary architectures by Ford, Parsons, and Kua. So predicting the elites based on the few information details that we know at the beginning of the project, which is usually when we know less or about the, about the nature of the situation. I'm also interested in reducing the cost, hence the, the economics of it, hence related to the software engineering that you mentioned. Uh, because after all, software is very expensive. So I would like to make it cheaper and make it more affordable and make it um, available for everyone who, who would like to enjoy it. I really like your, your mentality, Alvaro. First, having the opportunity to change from a classic architect role to software engineer, and then seeing and looking at software as, as a whole, as a craft. Um, I think it's just marvelous because at the end, it's a really good way of, of building it, uh, being an all-round <laughs> principal software engineer. This yeah, is, this is great. I, I think so as well. I think so as well. I think that bringing other 
um, areas of knowledge or other disciplines into into software is very is very interesting. If you treat software like a like a process, like we design, then we implement, then we test, then we deliver, um, you're missing a lot of things. So especially with the um, craft uh, analogy that that you mentioned, it, I think this is very powerful for for software too. Yeah, I I, I really agree. Let's always remember that this is an art and a mix also of engineering. Thank you for, for this mindset, Alvaro. Now, we need to start defining what a principal and a staff software engineer uh, uh, do, right? It, it differs in different companies. We have had uh, several different principal engineers from diverse companies. So can you tell us a more, uh, more about your path to becoming a principal software engineer? Yeah, sure. So as, as you've mentioned, there are as many principal engineers as, as people doing the the job or the role. So I'm not trying to to come up with a definitive answer on this. But I, I would like to give you my, my point of view, right? So as you've mentioned, uh, a principal software engineer encompasses many different activities, roles, tasks, etc. So um, my, my point of view on the issue is I've helped, let's say, multiple teams design and deliver working software, this, this concept from, from XP and from architecture of, of working software. Whether it is helping them to choose the right technology or applying the design patterns or teaching some prof process improvements, um, we're, we're back to the same idea of these well-rounded professional this well-rounded crafter to the um, to the field of software. So software is not only coding, it's not only testing, it's not only process, but it's a mix of it, right? So the more you see software as a whole, as a complete uh, unit, the more you can benefit uh, from it and the more you can improve it, right? So other things that can that you can do as a as a principal software engineer i believe is you can mentor people or you can kickstart a proof of concept because it's more difficult or the team does not have the time to investigate this new technology and you've tried it in the past or you can assess whether this is a good fit or not or simply pair program on a feature with them so for example there's a specific thing that they don't know how to test so you sit down for for a morning or for the full day with them and say, so this is how I would do it. This is how I would test the feature. I would start by testing it around here and then uh, constrain it to there and then extract and then et cetera. And step-by-step step, you, you show how you would do it. Show in the sense of you demonstrate how you do it, not uh, showing in the sense of telling them how to, but rather the humble view of, I don't know how to do it, but if I had to, I would do it this way because X, Y, and Z. So I would do it this way because I have the impression that the code is, I don't know, flaky around this part and the more robust around this other. So we're going to take this path, no? So I've also particip I've participated in, in projects as, a, as an internal consultant, we would say. So this is more or less the role that you would expect from a consultant in the sense that they come 
they help you solve the problem and then they leave they're not with you for a very long time uh, for for years but rather uh, come in for with a specific goal in mind whether it is to kickstart the project or whether it is to uh, make the code robust again or you know with specific uh, thing in mind and then they help you they transfer the knowledge and then they leave just that uh, being internal i also started and to understand better their context their problems their stakeholders you know because every person is is different right i was also keen on on sharing as, as much knowledge with them as possible so they gain uh, the autonomy and responsibility in the sense that i'm not trying to make myself um, necessary in that uh, in that job but rather trying to to teach and trying to help my teams perform better and then they do not need me anymore they will need me for other things if they if they like the way we work together and we can continue collaborating on other things but there is no point in me doing the same thing over and over with them but rather helping them do the thing on on their own and then i can focus on on something else so uh of course, as a small disclaimer, so this uh, much autonomy and responsibility is possible without the, uh, within the given scenario, right? So you cannot give uh, 100% uh, at once without being sure that uh, this is going to be effective and this is going to be productive for the, for the whole. You, you also asked on how, to, on how to become one or how did I become one? So in a, in a previous uh, engagement with, uh, with a client, I observed how a principal engineer that I really respected performed their, their job duties, how uh, they moved around, how they behaved, how, uh, which questions they, they asked, uh, which was their goal or which things did they have in mind, etc. So I started shadowing them. So going, going to meetings with them and, going, and performing their uh, duties with them and asking dumb questions or let's say asking a few questions and some of them were quite dumb, I admit, but this is um, something that you can do to learn better. So not only to learn by copying, but rather learning by uh, doing and understanding why they're doing the thing. Not only what they're doing, but also why they're doing it. Um, this person also mentored me, so I'm very, very thankful for that. And when the opportunity came up, I started practicing my skills under the, the guidance of said engineer. And, you know, little by little, this showed me the ropes of the new job, what to do and, and what not to do, how to affront or how to tackle the situation, etc. When I took a new engagement, I was lucky enough uh, not to be shadowing, but performing the role myself officially and all, you know. And as I said earlier, I consider myself quite lucky. I I will say the same. It's amazing how also you saw the opportunity to have a mentor in your career and, and you didn't wait for him to spot you, but you went to to the point that, that you started asking questions and shadowing him. I think this is super valuable, Alvaro. And again, our listeners will nurture from this um, podcast and, and the information you are sharing. Now, I want to ask you, Gianluca. Sorry, if I if I may. Uh, one of the things that uh, I've I've learned along the way is people 
people like what they do in or at least some of them but they're also looking for you to do their job so uh, in the in the sense in the thing that we were mentioning earlier so if i'm able to help um, my principal engineer to perform their role better right so i and they can delegate effectively some things to me in general they will do it why because they can focus on something else something more important for the company right so this uh, i have to acknowledge this extra work of trying to understand what uh, your boss or what your line manager is doing and then trying to do a part of that work for them you know, without taking credit and etc., it's going to give you a lot of of new knowledge about a lot of um, opportunities to learn. Why? Because you're stepping out of your comfort zone, right? So you're doing not only the things that you should be doing, but rather the things that your uh, boss is doing, or you know, at least try to doing it, and then they cover up your your mistakes and your screw ups and all of that. But you learn along. Uh, sorry, you, you learn a lot along along the way, so that is an opportunity to progress in your career. Totally agree with you, Alvaro. Again, this is a great tip on how to grow uh, and build a career path within any given uh, role that you have. If it's uh, software engineering, uh, tech recruiting, or, or whatever you are doing, this is a great way of uh, looking at an opportunity to grow. So again, thank you for, for sharing this. No worries. To be honest, I think what we're discussing, I, I feel a little bit bad of, of, of saying this because I believe that um, you know many of our readers, sorry, many of our listeners could say, well, but I already know this. Yeah, yeah, of course. But I'm just stating the obvious, you know? And, and this happens. Uh, many times we know the theory, but uh, when we don't put it in practice, uh, we don't realize how powerful it can be. Yeah, fully so agree. I agree with you. Fully <laughs> agree with you. Perfect, Alvaro. So let's move forward. Um, I will ask you now, uh, in your role, uh, what are the key responsibilities of a principal engineer? You already mentioned some, uh, of course, with uh, autonomy and resp given responsibilities and knowing all, all of the areas of, of your craft, app design, um, code, uh, principles, uh, and computer science fundamentals, and many more. But what are the key responsibilities of a principal engineer with your role? I, in my opinion, as a principal engineer, you are less of an individual contributor and more of a multiplier. So your responsibilities, your key responsibilities should be along those lines. So you cannot uh, think on how can I expand my productivity um, how can I code faster? How can I do things faster? But rather, my job is now to get all of these things for my team or for my teams, if you have many. So instead of how can I optimize the speed in which I type, you think, how can I make my team better, right? So for that, I believe that your responsibilities should include being available for your teammates. Right? Even as an individual contributor, you should be available. But as a as a principal, I believe you should be even more available. So um, they will they will come and they will ask you a few questions. Some of them you, you will not know the answer. Some of them will be very dumb in your opinion. But um, remember that these people are asking these questions because they're interested. They don't know the answer, and they want to improve and get better. Right. So. Your, your goal is to help them achieve more, 
And for, for some people that will be on the process side, for some people it will be on uh, coding, for some people it will be on testing, et cetera, et cetera, right? So you have to try to understand what is um, interesting for the team and for the department and for the person individually and try to help them along along those lines, right? So as, as you can imagine, by being open to many questions and, and working together with people, uh, that makes you somewhat reactive to their needs. So um, that makes you um, not proactive in the sense that I, I decide that uh, we need to be doing this, but rather I am reactive on the things that they ask and then that causes me my shift to focus, no? So as I, I believe that as a responsibility, you need to be aware of uh, what they're doing, even if you're not fully involved in their tasks. So let's say you have an idea of the epic or the big chunk of work they're, they're working on, not specifically, you know, the concrete uh, feature. So whenever you need to jump in, you need to get uh, used quickly to what they're doing. You need to understand uh, their context and understand what is uh, worrying them or worrying the team and then help them do it better. Uh, regarding the um, proactive versus reactive, uh, split of, of time that we were mentioning, I believe you should have um, a balance for for research, for thinking about what's best, for setting goals and deciding on the alternatives, no? which are, uh, all of those are proactive activities and the reactive activities that you have with, with your team. Um, what else? I believe that as a principal, you're involved in, in many uh, projects or many teams at once. Hence, it is it is a good responsibility to and a good skill to be able to uh, redirect meetings to email. Have you heard of this of this saying? Oh, but this meeting could have been an email, right? So yes. <laughs> so it's it's a good um, skill to develop on on knowing and and guessing which meeting can be an email, which email. Uh, needs to be a meeting, uh, you know, how to, how to shift from one to, the, from one to another, how to run uh, specific uh, meetings and, you know, how to chair them and how to attend them, et cetera, et cetera. And you also need to, to keep a big picture of what your company is doing, right? Um, and to context switch fast and efficiently. So for example, for the first half an hour of your work, you check in, uh, you check in with your colleagues and see that everything is well, there are no fires in production. And then uh, quickly you can attend the meeting, right? And then you can quickly sit down with your with your peers for a session of pre-programming and et cetera. And yes, you take a coffee from time to time, but you're also uh, able to, to context switch efficiently. As a, as a, how can I say, as a key responsibility, I see a difference between the principal and other roles in, in the sense that you don't generally, or me at least, I did not have people reporting to you. So I, I did not do any line management and you're quite free to delegate said work to, to a manager, uh, to, to the manager of the team if there's some or to the team in itself. Right, so the team can self-manage to that, and you're free uh, not to do it. Also, that buys you time to do other things, right? Mm -hmm. Totally, as as you say, I I love the 
uh, terminology that you shared of being a multiplier. And this makes sense with everything that you said because uh, you are trying to optimize not just the, the engineering part of, of it, but uh, the teams themselves, the culture and everything around. Mm-hmm. Alvaro, yeah. I think and I, I, I'm pretty sure actually that our listeners would like to know more or less what is the structure in, in that you're working on? Because, uh, of course, you, 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 don't, you're not, you don't have a line management uh, and you're having a big impact. So just to contextualize a little bit better, um, what is the structure of, of your, more or less, of your team right now? How, how, how are you there providing this uh, mentorship and being a multiplier? So to give you a, a, a glimpse of my, of my context, let's say that there are a few teams, uh, autonomous teams of, uh, let's say, product development with their product owner, their uh, tester or many testers, depending on, on the team. There are uh, UX people, there are developers, etc. And those teams usually report to the head of a department or to a VP. Depends, depends on the case, right? But the thing is, I'm not in there to do any line management. That was that was your question about no. So I'm not in there to do any line management. They don't report to me. I don't decide or on on holidays, on salary, on um, whether they can change teams or not. That that is not my responsibility. I don't want it. I prefer to focus on on other parts. So I'm kind of. Um, I also report to that uh, same head of the department or or VP, right? And we try to help the teams uh, perform better. So for a specific team, it, would be, it might be on, on, on product or on, you know, on, on, pro- on process side or on coding side, etc. So the thing is, I have delegated even up, right? Which is a little bit weird to understand at first, but mm-hmm. I am not taking care of that responsibility because somebody else higher uh, in, in the, um, organization than me is taken care of, right? So I can focus my attention on something else. Totally. Does it make sense? Yes, yes, it's it's superb. And again, uh, I'm, I'm thinking on on the whole impact that you're having because it's, it's cross-functional. You are uh, directly reporting to this head off and as all the other of uh, EMs or, or um, engineering PO managers. And, yeah. Yes. And, and then uh, all the engineers that are involved in this team. So it, it's amazing to, to see how much of an impact a principal software engineer has. So, um, well, thank you for the kind good. words. <laughs> no, it's really, it's really good. It's super interesting. Now let's move forward. Alvaro. Mm-hmm. Uh, already as a principal, what has been the most exciting challenge that you had? Well, that's a that's a tough question. I, I don't know if I can um, enter it uh, fully, but one experience that, that comes to mind, one project that, that comes to my mind is, um, I remember I participated in a legacy code project as, uh, as a principal in which, and I'm trying to recap the things, uh, the project was, if I'm not mistaken, the project was trying to recover from a financial disaster. Uh, in the past, 
the project was uh, in the field of of printing um let's say you you have a few pictures and a few um memories no and you want to print them in, in an album of of some kind the um, the project in itself was not running very well the product was more okay more or less okay ish uh, financially so it, it was slightly profitable but uh, very expensive in terms of maintenance and then the client eh, they were not very keen on, on adding new features and and keeping investing on the on the project because you know it was it was all very expensive and very how can i say very cumbersome to work with right and um deadlines us were used to be expanded by 50% or even 100% more so it was not let's say it, it was not the the most fun project you you used to work with right so i also remember that it was very expensive of running it on on either us because this was hosted on on either us it was very expensive because it was not very optimized so you you had to have a lot of infrastructure like queues and uh, extra processing power and databases just for doing these very small things so what what we did was a twofold approach right so with uh, with the help of a new ux user experience expert um we we tried to revamp the the ux of the product to improve the conversion rates so the conversion rate were not very good so that meant that all of the all of the base hardware usage was low and we had to have it in place but uh, it was not making a lot of money so conversion rate could could help by bringing more money with the same more or less same costs so that is one and then we by by doing um a whole uh, product approach or a, a system thinking approach on the on the code part we realized that one of the services one of the microservices was very expensive to modify and this was causing a big chunk of the of the delays so what we did was um we we set a an epic of work to test that most expensive microservice and adapt it to the new needs no and therefore we were we were sure that uh, for current needs and future needs it was slightly cheaper to adapt and modify we also got uh, let's say the full knowledge of it and then we were more comfortable working with it so uh if i if i take a look at it now the project is is making more money uh, and as uh, it has reduced its costs so it's uh, you know it's it makes more money for for the client and it makes more sense for them to keep investing and expanding new features etc and uh, finally what i you know the satisfaction that i get from it is that the product is is profitable to to run again so that is that is one challenge that i remember uh in the past and it was very very exciting to to work on this sounds thrilling alvaro it's it's a complete big challenge and it's great that you could uh, focus on improving the conversion rates uh, and the user experience and then uh testing uh, the microservices and this is this is also a big challenge because testing with microservices gets a little bit more complicated but 
congratulations because the project is making more money with reduced costs and and it's profitable again so so well, congratulations thank you the this was a team effort so i'm very happy on on how things turned out and uh, this was a team effort this was a, a very big participation from the ux ui expert and so we were close in contact with a with a client on so they disclosed their uh, financials to us and then we were able to to attack the problem from from the root of it no not not just from the from the technical part but rather from from a whole which is something that i that i really enjoy team team perspective yeah team perspective How important yeah. <laughs> yes perfect now for the future engineers that are listening you have tons of experience scaling products what recommendations do you have for engineers that are passing through this so if i if i go go back to my to my previous um story i, I think that especially in a, in a small company or client it's also your responsibility to make the project profitable in the sense that we're not only hired to get tickets from jira and then deliver them to production but rather we're also paid to solve problems right and for a small company the product no, sorry the, the problem is sometimes to be profitable so which in which ways we can impact the bottom line in a positive way so for example we could make the product leaner to run or cheaper to run or we can move it um, to another infrastructure, right? We can move it off AWS in some examples. We can move it to AWS uh, in others. We can optimize here and there. We can uh, choose one technology instead of another for, for making it cheaper to run or for making it uh, more profitable, et cetera, right? And in let's say if you're not in a, in a small company and you don't have a saying in which uh, ways do you run this or it has been decided higher up or etc. Uh, I think that a, a good way of uh, checking whether, um, you know, of, of, of scaling, no? of scaling that product that, that you were mentioning, Gianluca, is uh, canary releases. So canary releases, um, I'm sure most of the people are, are um, used to the concept maybe not so many with with a name because it's uh, relatively new so it's a way of uh, deploying and releasing a part of of your fleet of servers with the new um, server version so imagine you have 100 servers running and then you take two of them and put the new version in there and then you can compare in real time uh, what's the conversion rate from the new one from the uh, to the old one or what are the costs or whether it suffers from some hiccups or whether it wor works better or not and then after that after you have successfully tested the, the deploy and release uh, with that specific version etc etc you can decide to scale the um, the new software version to the other environments right and then you you can little by little start scaling in terms of performance or in terms of a number of features or in terms of that to the rest so you can start small and build something that is useful for for your clients and then they can they can value they get value from it right it benefits the users etc and then once you you have validated the hypothesis what you do is um, you, you try to make it leaner um, 
to the point in which makes sense. Not more, not less, okay, but uh, leaner because especially in the beginning when we um, kickstart a project or a product, uh, we we take some shortcuts, you know, because it's not the same uh, running for five users, five concurrent users that uh, from five million, right? So there are a few choices that you can take in one uh, case and not the other. So we try to make it leaner and more um, and closer, right? To the to the five million users that we now have. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The importance of of uh, knowing how to scale from from small to to bigger uh, situations. And as you say, in global, we are actually using the, the canary releases because having a way of doing segmentation and do not, reducing the risks of of uh, of a big deploy or failures or or. Or so with them, it's it's really good, and also as you said, it lets you test, and then if it works, you can you can iterate from there. So yeah, great. I, I think you have great, a good great. point in there, uh, Gianluca. Especially with a um, with a canary, uh, what you can do is there are usually no a set of users in your user base, which are eager to test the newest and latest and and flashiest, right? So we usually call them the beta testers. So for those beta testers, you can even offer them some discount. Uh, so you're you're saying, okay, you you're getting the newest and earliest, and it, you know, we have tested it, and and we sincerely believe that it works well. But sometimes errors happen, right? So what we're going to do is we, if you accept, and if you would like to, we can put you on the beta channel. You can test our software in the beta state. And if there's something goes wrong, we can issue you a small discount. Or you can say, we can put you in the beta channel and then you get the newest uh, earlier than the rest. And you pay the, um, how can I say, the small mistakes that go unnoticed from our team, right? And the user can freely decide whether I want to be in the more stable part of the software because you know that works well for me or whether I want to be in the beta state which is more useful for me, even at the risk of some defects from time to time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We we do this uh, also at Global. Actually, have the beta version, and and with this we also can see uh, the prime new things. But as you say, as, uh, when software is in a beta version, uh, sometimes it could have uh, little errors as, as everything mm -hmm. because it, it's being built. But it's great that you also suggest this to the users uh, as, a, as an idea. This is a great idea, Alvaro. And, and again, <laughs> thank you. Thank you, because these things are going to be really useful. But I'm not saying anything new. You already do it. And many of our listeners already do it. So I'm, I'm just um, stating the obvious. But again, <laughs> I think the, one, the, the, the people that are listening are here to, 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 to understand um, how you and, and other principal engineers are, are, are got there with these best practices, and mm -hmm. these are the best practices that are, that have taken you there. So I think they're very good, very valid, and even if it's obvious, uh, they're working for you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they are. Perfect. So now let's go also a little bit on, on the technical side. Many of us will be eager to know uh, how to scale in a healthy way, as we were talking. Mm -hmm. uh, at Global, for example, we are transitioning from a monolithic architecture to microservices. What suggestions do you have to this? Ah, this is this is something very 
very useful. There are many valid answers out there. Um, my point of view on the situation is that a monolith is a very healthy way of deploying your software because it makes it very simple. But past a certain point, uh, it is it is not so simple anymore to coordinate all of the teams working on the on the same uh, uh, code base, right? So we we usually try to split uh, microservices out, no, to extract them, and then these these new microservices can live on with its uh, own life cycle and uh, being independent from the from the rest, no. One um, alternative that I really like for extracting those. Um, Boundaries is what uh, in domain-driven design they call the bounded context. No, so the bounded context is a logical aggregation of of entities, value objects, and domain terms and then context. We would say that makes sense on its own, right? So a bounded context might or not might be a microservice, right? Because in a microservice you could have multiple bounded contexts, small ones, but uh, in general it is a good rule of thumb. And the, um, the bounded context is usually defined in terms of of the domain experts, meaning the people that know more about the about your business are the ones who decide how the um, how the services and how the no how the how the context talk uh, between them. So that is that is one alternative. For that for splitting no? from, from a monolith to microservices architecture. So domain-driven design also offers a few um, topics or a few techniques. One of them is the, is a context map no? in which you place all of the bounded context in your, in your organization and also the context relationship. So there are seven relationships between the, the bounded context. So let's say seven kinds of uh, ways uh, of communicating upon the context to to another one if you know them if you if you read about them you can see how the bounded context can communicate to each other and how you like to have your monolith communicating with um, with a microservice one way one common way of, of doing it is uh, you have your um, monolith that still receives the query in this case a rest call from the outside and then they delegates it to a microservice no gets the answer back and then pushes the answer out another way is uh, through um, some kind of redirection no you still query the monolith uh, the nginx that you have in there redirects the answer to the sorry the, the query to the microservice and then the microservice directly responds to nginx no so there are, there are multiple there are multiple ways there are so it, this is very interesting domain driven design especially the red book and the blue book um, a little bit hard to read but very interesting um, with regards to to bounded context and uh, the, the map and the relationships and, and etc. And first of all, thank you for for both books the the red and, and blue books. Now, um, as a principal engineer, how do you keep up uh, up to date on technical topics? Hmm. So this is, hmm, this is a good point. This is something you, we usually ask in our interviews because I'm I'm eager to know how candidates are uh, keeping up to date and how 
because you know technology evolves so fast so fast and, and moves so fast that it's difficult uh, at least for me to keep up to date on the topics i'm, I'm interested uh, in so how how i like to do it is uh, first and, and foremost is uh, sharing to and from the community right so based on the community you gotta you gotta pulse on what people are uh, learning and what they're studying and what they're uh, working on right and, and then you got the opportunity to as you mentioned earlier oh so they're doing the um, the fraud checking with uh, machine learning oh, okay oh, oh this this could be interesting you know so i get inputs from from the community and from the people around me and that is uh, i believe very relevant right because people in my company can can tell me what they're learning about and then uh, i can decide whether it makes sense for me to study that or no or if i want to do something completely different based on based on those uh, pointers based on those um, ideas so what i what i do is i prefer to read books that uh, interest me so uh, blogs are a good way of of getting information but some of them they're very uh, shallow right so especially in in coding they only get you the answer on how to connect to the database using this special uh, chart set uh, codification etc but they don't tell you how how the things work underneath right so i like to go a little bit deeper than the than the shallow part and go to the to the justifications to the why to understand the principles etc and uh, finally, I, I like to take a percentage of, of my work time to, to study in depth those topics that are relevant for my work. For example, um, in this story I was telling you about um, printing um, your memories, right? So I, I took a little bit of, of my time with uh, a couple of users to understand why they're doing uh, where they doing the, the printing of this, right? So they told me that um, it was important for them because they want to preserve the memories, which makes sense. So that tells me that they value um, that the application works well, that is safe to use and it's not going to delete uh, their pictures, it's not going to get them lost, etc., etc. So based on that, I started reading uh, a couple of books on on psychology and on, how can I say, on psychological safety to understand better uh, their point of view, right? So it sometimes it is not related at all to to your day-to-day -day work, right? But it helps you understand better how your users are feeling and helps you empathize with them on why they use the application in this way or, or et cetera. Of course, it's like having... Um peripheral vision, right? Having a bigger vision of, uh, of the situation and, and getting out of your comfort zone and learning new, new things. From these topics, uh, can you recommend one or two books and one, one or two blogs for our listeners? Yeah, I, even if it's a little bit uh, controversial, I like this book called Thinking Fast and Thinking Slow by Daniel Kahneman. Sorry if the pronunciation is not correct. And another one called um, Flow, which is uh, well known apparently in the psychology uh, department by Mikhail, Mikhail Sensisky. The My pronunciation is, is totally wrong, but if you search uh, mm -hmm. Flow, 
um, this you search for flow book, you'll find it on, on Google and, and later on we'll put the, I hope we'll put the, um, how's it called? The link down. So should you need to, you don't need to rely on my wrong pronunciation to find the book. <laughs> Perfect. All right. All right. <laughs> Sorry. My Hungarian pronunciation is not that, uh, that good, you know? Don't worry, don't worry. <laughs> um, you're originally from there, from Buda or from Pesh? <laughs> no, no, uh, <laughs> no, <laughs> no, 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 no. Good, good job, good job. But no, no, I'm, I'm from, from here. So my, my pronunciation is not, is not that good, you know. <laughs> perfect, perfect. Um, thank you for sharing this also. Um, and you are someone that is sharing constantly. So you are a teacher in University La Salle focusing on agile methodologies. Can you tell us what advantages have you found, which one you use, and tell us a little bit more about extreme programming? Oh, that's a good question. So on agile methodologies, I'm not going to rehash uh, what, is, uh, what is out there because that would, be, that would make no sense. But uh, I found that um, agile methodologies are very useful and they're a good choice when you can release uh, quickly. So um, when you can release quickly, when you can uh, get your product out there to your users and when they can give you feedback, etc. right? So this is, this is a very good uh, approach because you can release quickly and then um, you can try things out. And if, you know, if things work out for the best, you go on and, and you try them out and you get feedback from users. If they don't, that's good because you did not invest a lot, right? So as always, this um, way of working has limitations. And for example, if you work in, in critical software, for example, nuclear reactors or avionics or uh, I don't know, cryptography. So these have some limitations. And then the, um, how can I say, the agile methodologies are not so useful anymore or you don't get as much value from them. So uh, me personally, I prefer like a, like a mix of uh, Scrum and, uh, and XP. So Scrum on the outside, Scrum to, to guide my, um, my process, and then XP on the inside to guide my technical decisions and, and technical choices, right? So XP, Extreme Programming, also offers some kind of uh, project management framework for gathering uh, requirements, developing them, prioritizing them, showing uh, a, a demo from time to time, etc. I prefer to use the Scrum version. Why? Because I feel it's more useful for my for my stakeholders, for my business stakeholders, for changing them towards XP uh, for the process management is uh, a big ask and does not provide a lot of return on, on investment ROI. So I like to keep them to what they know and it's good enough for me. Um, also, if the team is more mature and the team is able to regulate themselves better, I prefer Kanban than Scrum because it's a little bit uh, less ceremonial and, and gives, me, gives me more time to, to learn and, and to practice and etc. And so I can be more effective and especially more efficient with, uh, with Kanban, but it also depends on, on the team, right? So about XP. Mm. So XP, I like, I like it as a way of 
um, working with teammates. So in this small book on, on XP that I read a long time ago, it, it mentioned um, software building as a team sport. So even if you can, you can build software on your own, especially in, in companies, in, in big companies, uh, software is always developed as a, as a team effort. So you will not, you will not be the one in charge of a microservice. And in my opinion, you should not be the one person in the company knowing about this microservice, uh, just you, right? So because that introduces uh, risks and costs that the, that the company, you know, they're, they're dangerous for the company. So uh, also what I like about XP, XP proposes uh, a few principles and a few values and a few practices. So what I, what I get from it as um, let's say I, it, it makes working with my code a pleasure, right? So I know that my code is always uh, up to date. It's never rusty. I can check the, no, I can verify the code that is, uh, it sticks to my, to my requirements with, with push up a button. And then I can always compile the code because I'm, I'm following continuous integration. And then my code is, as simple as it should be, not more, not less, right? Following the simple design. So all of these makes um, makes my code, as I said, more pleasurable to, to work on. And after all, if we spend eight hours at the office every day and uh, you make a big chunk of your work more pleasurable, so the better for everyone, right? Um, I, I really like the, the craft analogy that you mentioned in the in the beginning, and I like uh, working with my tools and sharpening my tools and and you know making them better and and then after all, code is just another tool that I have in my toolbox to serve um, my stakeholders, right? So why not why not make it better at a small cost for the improvement and for the benefit of of everyone? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Totally agree. Totally agree. I love uh, it's uh, one of the few times that I've been hearing about extreme programming and it's a pleasure of uh, learning from you this topic. Uh, I love how you said uh, software building as a team sport um, that makes you also working with your code a pleasure and always trying to keep it up to date. And about um, agile methodologies, as you said, it's very interesting to see uh, where's the state of each team. Uh, maybe sometimes you will apply more Scrum or other Scanban and, and it's interesting to know. Uh, thank you again uh, for sharing this. Now, um, we, we have uh, around five more minutes. So I'll try to keep it short. I know I speak a lot. I, I talk too much. So I'll try, to, I'll try to keep it short this time. Don't worry that we are two that speak a lot. <laughs> <laughs> don't worry, don't worry. Uh, perfect. I think this is very important for our listeners. What key lesson you learn in the engineering field that you hold on to and use? So I, wow. No, no, that is... That is a good point because you're you're asking on on what people can. Okay, I said I I would not talk too much, so let's try to stick it, try to stick to the point. Um, if you ask me, I would say uh, there is so much knowledge in in old uh, quote quote old for our field uh, books and articles, right? So there is uh, so much, literally so much knowledge in the sixties, seventies, and and eighties, 
there is uh, object uh, knowledge, right? Knowledge about objects, distributed computing, microservices even. They, they did not call it microservices back then, but a few principles um, apply, right? So if you get past the initial trees, you, you can see the forest and you can see that some um, publishings back then were really talking about independent um, objects that talk uh, to each other through an interface and then they they get not they don't meddle with the implementation and they try not to get too much knowledge about the rest right so this is kind of similar to, to what we have so this in that sense this disregarding the past because it's uh, not exactly our current problem right so microservices because because sorry microservices versus objects um, I, I consider this a big disadvantage um, because having a having a good background in theory, you know, whatever it helps your current feature, your your current or future engagement. So having having a good background in in theory is a big plus in my opinion. Uh, why reinvent the wheel? Uh, trying to discover small details, theories, corollaries when you can spend a fraction of the time reading, researching, and learning from the past, right? So why trying to uh, inventing everything here now following the not invented here syndrome when you can spend a fraction of of the cost um learning from the past right so mm -hmm. for me um the secret is, is to and, and this is a this is this is difficult i i acknowledge but is to have a, a wide enough knowledge base that you know where to continue searching. For example, if you are working on a microservice architecture, um, so it would be good to have a good object orientation uh, background. So maybe not very deep, but slightly shallow. And then uh, you have a pointer, no? In, in that topic, I have a pointer. I know this book might help me whenever I get to that point. I know that I can consult uh, from that book. So by, by having these kind of pointers to more resources and, and more knowledge, you can research your current topic in time when you need it. So you don't need to remember all of the books that you read in the past, but rather I know that whenever this topic comes around, I go to that book. Another solution is, is to know which appropriate question to ask, which is slightly difficult in my opinion, uh, whether it's to Google, to a colleague, to a mentor, to the community around you, etc. And but let me give you an example. So let's say let's say you have a doubt on designing a microservice, no? So a, a good question to ask Google is directly how to design an endpoint, right? Quote, quote. And then you could get some kind of Stack Overflow answer on with uh, you know resources and and look further, read further, and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, maybe a better question is is to ask what is the proposed standard for an, an endpoint, right? So not only how do I do it, but how do other people recommend I do it, okay? So maybe um, based on that, you can get um, Roy Field's uh, master's thesis about uh, representational state transfer, uh, also known as REST. You can also get an RFC, a request for comments, um, and you could keep digging, right? But maybe an even better question to ask is, what architecture model do the microservices follow? And, and the answer to that is, mm, you, you can find it on, on the Magnificent books, 
on, on objects and objects designed by Alan Kay, which are uh, slightly old, but uh, still very relevant for, for objects. So if you if you realize of the analogy um, on the thing you're working on, right? So microservices can be somewhat similar to objects on a, on a big scale. You can get the benefits on objects and objects design that were described uh, by Alan Kay and by others and apply them to your day-to-day job, right? So it's not going to be like a Stack Overflow answer in which you copy paste the code and then magically runs. You don't know what's happening, but magically it works. But rather it, it will be some kind of ideas that you will get from there and then you will understand, oh, I need to organize my code in this way or I need to communicate these two microservices in this way or etc. I don't know if it makes sense. It's a little bit theoretical, Gianluca. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But uh, again, it's the combination of, of trying to understand how things were done in the past, uh, how are uh, they they are being uh, done now, and about uh, asking the right questions and reading and learning. Right, <laughs> this is this is great. Um, so, Alvaro, um, you have had an amazing career. I'm pretty sure all of, all of our listeners are super happy and will be super happy to to listen to us. Um, but this is a question that I, I always make. It's like the, the signature question. I really like it because I'm seeing uh, a lot of new stuff uh, regarding technology, uh, biohacking, you call it, or Neuralink with Elon Musk, or Project Cooper and the constellations of satellites uh, with uh, SpaceX and, and Amazon. Mm -hmm. So um, from George Bull until today, what do you think is the future of technology in the coming 10 years? You ask a, you ask a big question to me, man. You ask a, you, so you, you put Elon Musk and uh, SpaceX and uh, Amazon technologies and all of that, and then you ask me to come, uh, to, to come about with the future in technology in 10 years? Well, I'm, I don't know. I'm, I'm not smart enough to make uh, that kind of prediction on my own, right? So, so I think the, the smartest answer to that is, is to rehash some predictions from the past, which uh, I believe they still hold. So there, there was this, uh, you know, back to the eighties um, article from Frederick Brooks, Frederick Brooks, known as um, the author of the Mythical Men Month, uh, among other things. So he he published an essay uh, with the main idea being uh, there is no silver bullet, right? So the the quote from the from the article says. There is no single development in either technology or management technique, which by itself promises even one order of magnitude improvement within a decade in productivity, in, in reliability, and in simplicity. Right. So I think that uh, this was published in, in 1986, so more than 30 years later. Um, and we still believe in it. We still believe in that myth. Uh, we still believe in that a small change in technology or in process or in a team will bring a 10x improvement. So one of the current variants of this is called the 10x programmer, right? And I'm, I'm not going to go into there, but uh, remember that this essay was published in, in 86, was revisited by the author uh, a few years later with a re-edition of the, of the book. Mm, he still thinks it applies and uh, given that I'm not smart enough to come up with my own predictions, I still believe it applies. So I still believe that in 10 years, 
we will not see a 10x improvement in productivity, reliability, and simplicity on on a single development, right? So maybe a few things, maybe we can combine a few things, et cetera, et cetera. Maybe Elon's uh, Musk ideas are revolutionary, but uh, I don't see, we will, I don't think we will see this 10x improvement anytime soon. Sorry, Super. sorry to be a downer. Sorry to be a downer. Don't worry, super interesting mindset. I really like uh, to think about this. I, I didn't know about the mythical man month about Brooks and it's super interesting because I'm going to read it about the no there's no silver bullet and it makes sense it, it makes sense also and, and it's interesting now uh, the very last question uh, Alvaro let's try to give our listeners um, some um, uh, resources and advices for all of them that are starting in the software development uh, career path or, or, or path what what advices will you tell to them so so i think if if you like to if you like to start in engineering or you just started um, let's say let's say you're a student so if you're a student what i what i did was to find a major specialization that you enjoy in my case was uh, computer science but uh, it could be math or hardware uh, software engineering etc right so start uh, what I did was to start mixing paid jobs with your studies to to get a glimpse of the world outside of the university. You know, they offer a very um, broad and very um, good technical glimpse of the of the world of work, etc. And then you go to you go to your job, and then you find another complementary vision of of the same topic. And you know, balancing these two out made me, I believe, a better professional because I'm not only biased by university or by work, but by both, right? So mm -hmm. if you're if you're not a student and uh so I have a friend, I'll give you I'll give you a backstory to this. So if if you're not a student anymore, maybe you're slightly older or you have another career in your under your belt already, a good way to, to get into engineering is to into specific uh specifically software is uh, a to be a self-taught self student, so to study on your own, or to enroll in a bootcamp. That could be um, the the latter. It's a slightly more expensive, but also quicker way of of getting into into software engineering. So you can find an uh, a bootcamp alternative that suits you, economy-wise, goal-wise, principle-wise, etc. And uh, I think the definitive answer to this is to start working hard. So um, why start working hard? So let me give you a backstory to this. I have a I have a Kiwi friend, right, from from New Zealand, who was a marketer for a long time. In this case, ten plus years, and uh, he turned into an excellent programmer. I mean, excellent after enrolling in a bootcamp. Uh, I must say, he worked very very hard to to make it happen. So he used to get up from from the bootcamp and then go home and and study. And practice and do the exercises and and he used to work very hard, but uh, that also made him a very um, a very good uh, programmer. It also helps that uh, as a as a marketing in his previous career, um, he also understood very well how people um, think and how they relate to each other. So that made him a very senior very quickly in terms of working a team. 
right? So with with this past experience, um, he was able to behave very well in a in a collective um, environment in a team, and that made him, you know, the perfect programmer to work to have in, in your team working with you because they understand you very well, and then you got the point, right? So also a, a quick um, a quick anecdote. This same friend that was studying on the, on the boot camp. Well, apparently stars aligned and him and the wife were having a baby uh, by, by the same time that he finished the boot camp. So imagine that you not only have a change in your career, but also you're studying full-time and then you're practicing and then you go home and uh, you have to take care of your newborn baby. So as I said, uh, working hard could be one of the answers in this case. In this friend's case, it, it really worked, um, but it might be different for for everyone else outside. This is this is amazing to hear, uh, Alvaro. Uh, thank you for sharing this with with all of us. Uh, I think it's super uh, important to understand uh, how hard work pay pay off pays off. Thank you for sharing um, uh, the, the the ways of uh, learning, boot camps, courses, universities. Uh, uh, self-taught also and and also thank you for inspire people that maybe uh, were not or are not in a software engineering career and that they can make the change even if they are having kids <laughs> <laughs> yes yes Every, everything is possible if you um you know if, if you're lucky and and you get in the right point in the right time in the right attitude so in this case it was um not easy but highly rewarding so uh, it was a pleasure to to work with them. Yeah. <laughs> thank you, thank you, Alvaro, for for all of this uh, amazing uh, class um, about software and and how you got into principal engineering. Uh, we uh, ran out of time, um, but it has been an absolute pleasure uh, meeting you. Uh, thank you again, and nothing. Looking forward to continue uh, sharing with you. We will post. Uh, I will post your um, open source links also on mm -hmm. the or so or, or listeners will have them so thank you again alvaro well thank you again for having me it was it was a pleasure gianluca uh, have a really good uh, day ahead bye alvaro and you bye bye my show this is